Good evening. There's a few more. They're trickling in. Good to see your smiling faces here. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday night. We are continuing through the book of Exodus, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I was thinking earlier this week, it feels like uh, 40 years of wandering just through this book. Um, it has been quite a long time, but it's really been an enjoyable time. It's been an enriching time. Uh, and so I pray that that would be the same case tonight as we uh, continue to dive in. Uh, the passage tonight, uh, we're going to be in verses 18 through 27. They're a little bit obscure, and you will see why in a minute. But I want to just briefly do a recap on last week. Uh, these two sections, what Pastor John covered last week, and then this section tonight, are very much related. Uh, if you see in your Bibles, you probably have that whole section all lumped together, starting uh, probably around verse 10, and it would say something like the covenant are re renewed, or the new stone tablets, something along those lines. But we really need to make sure that we keep tonight in context with last week and the fact that there is this renewing of a covenant. So um, we know that Moses is back up on Mount Sinai for the second time. He's receiving the second iteration of the Ten Commandments during this time. Uh, verse 28, the end of the section actually tells us this. He says, he, Moses, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so Pastor John taught last week, uh, actually went back up, I think, to like verse 8, all the way down through 17. And the section was predominantly dealing with idolatry, or specifically the prohibition and the warning against idolatry. That was really one of the, the major themes of this. And then verse 10, the section begins, it says, behold, this is God speaking, behold, I am going to make a covenant. What is the covenant? I mentioned it's a renewed covenant. This is not a new covenant. Uh, nothing has, uh, has really changed. And much of what we read in this section is actually um, spoken of from Exodus 20 all the way through Exodus 23. There's a variety of different laws that were laid out there the first time. And then this section really uh, repeats most of those. Now, you recall from chapter 32, the incident with the golden calf, and that was really when the people decided to break the covenant. Moses comes down the mountain, throws the tablets, and they're, they're shattered. Uh, that was really the breaking of the covenant, not the actual act of Moses throwing the tablets, of course, but the people's rebellion against God on, on breaking the command to not worship idols and, and to not place anything else before him. And we know that as a result, in chapter 32, verse 28, that 3,000 people died that day as a result of breaking the covenant. There were serious consequences, if you will, for what had happened. The Lord struck down the people, smote the people for their rebellion. But we later find out, as we look at the beginning of this chapter, that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to speak and abounding in loving kindness. That is our God, amen? And so what God decides to do here is really renew the covenant. That's what's happening. He's, renewing, he's giving the people a second chance. And that's really the picture of what's going on here. Verse uh, 6, by the way, of chapter 34, that's our verse uh, that the Lord is saying, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Notice that this is God speaking. This isn't Moses. This isn't Moses recording something about God and speaking about him. He might have been the one that penned it, of course, but God himself says, the Lord, the Lord, or in Hebrew, Yahweh, Yahweh. And you remember all the way back when we first started this 40-year journey in Exodus, uh, earlier back, that that was the covenant name of God that he revealed to Moses. And what does it mean? 
What does it mean, Yahweh? In, in a sense, yeah, but I am that I am. You remember that? The great I am. I am that I am. And the Lord here is saying, his voice, he's saying, I am gracious and compassionate. I am abounding in loving kindness. And God, we know, is the God of not just second chances, as in this case, but he is the God of third chances and fourth chances and 100th chances, as many of us in this room can attest to. But along with this uh, covenant that is going to be renewed, there are conditions. God places conditions on this covenant. And specifically, we get the Ten Commandments that were given, but many various other laws, as I talked about, originally chapter 20 to 23. And we've talked about, and you've heard Pastor Michael say that this is something like, like a marriage covenant or marriage contract. These are vows almost between God and his people. And if we think of a modern-day wedding, I think of modern-day vows. You're probably familiar with the term forsaking all others. You've heard that before, right? When you commit to someone else, you will forsake all others, and you will be committed to that one particular spouse. And that's really the requirement that God is placing on the people here. He's actually asking them to forsake all others. That was the bulk of last week, tearing down idols. There's no room for any of those other things when you go to worship God. It's him and it's him alone. He commands that we are to forsake all others. We are to be wholly devoted to him. So take a look back up in verse 12 of 34 from last week. These are some of the commands that we saw God giving. He said, make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land in which you are going. Verse 13, he says, rather you're to tear down their altars and their sacred pillars and their ashram. You shall not worship any other God, verse 14, because you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, not a covenant with God, but a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and you might play the harlot with their gods and your offspring likewise. That's in verses 15 to 16. And then finally, the command in verse 17, you shall make for yourself no molten gods in direct reference to the golden calf and the sin of the people. So this previous section was the list of do nots mainly. It was the, the prohibition against idols and intermarrying and anything that would take them away. Anything that would cause them to play the harlot, if you will, against their God and to turn their hearts towards someone else. But the idea was that they're to completely obliterate everything, this idea of tearing it down and smashing and breaking everything down. Pastor John shared a reference last week to Romans 13, 14, and the idea of making no provision for the flesh. In a similar way, the Israelites were to make no provision for anything else to creep in, not to leave anything left. There wasn't to be any possibility that they would turn back to idols. And that's part of the process of forsaking all others. We forsake all others and we commit to God. We turn from the idols, but we turn to God. It's not enough to just turn away from the idols and then just wander off and hope the best and hope everything's going to work out. No, that's not going to work because a new idol will eventually come along and it will steal your heart away. So turning from idols to God. And then I believe that these next verses, that this section um, really is sort of the prescription that God gives for how to be joined to him and really how to worship him. This message is titled Covenant Worship. So again, do nots from last week, and now we're going to see the do's. Do nots last week, but now let's take a look at the do's. 
Why don't you stand with me? We're going to read uh, verse 18 through 28. Exodus 34, verse 18. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Abib. From the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me, and all your male livestock, the first offspring from the cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey, and if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear be appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest time you shall rest. You shall celebrate the feast of weeks, that is the first of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your males are to appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man shall covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel." You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your beautiful word to us. It is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it is profitable, Lord, uh, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And we pray for your spirit to lead us and guide us tonight, Father. Help us to digest these words that you have spoken to us, your people. Help us be faithful to not just hear them, but to apply them in our lives. May you give divine wisdom as to uh, how we should respond to your word, Lord. And may we be faithful in, in taking those steps to be committed to you, Lord. So we just ask your blessing upon this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned at the very beginning a little bit of an obscure passage. I think you see why. We talk about feasts. We talk about offerings of sons and animals and first fruits. There's another command to the Sabbath. And then you shall not uh, cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What in the heck do we make of that? Well, let's dive into it. Uh, tonight we're going to go not quite chronological. We're going to cover every verse, of course. But I'm going to break it down by section so that it flows a little bit easier. You'll see it's a little bit disjointed or it might appear that way. At least it was disjointed to me when I read it. So I've picked it apart in my mind and switched it around. So tonight, you get a little sneak peek into my mind. It's a little scary, but uh, come on in, enjoy the ride, and we'll, we'll pick this apart together. But with this idea of a prescription for how the Lord commands us to worship, how he wanted the Israelites to worship, but really, by extension, we can apply much of these same truths to us, I really see that there's three main things. Three main things that he commands. The first is to gather unto the Lord. Gather unto the Lord. The second is to give unto the Lord. And the third thing is to rest unto the Lord. Gather to the Lord, give to the Lord, and rest unto the Lord. So verse 18 begins, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month of Abib. 
For the month of Abib, you came out of Egypt. Skip down to verse 25, because it relates. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left until morning. Now, the feasts uh, have been a uh, big subject as of late. It was actually pretty funny. This was about, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks ago, Pastor Michael said, hey, uh, I want some of you guys to take over some of the teachings in Exodus. And he literally just went around and he wrote a, a, a scripture or a passage on a sticky note and he posted it on my desk. And I walked in and I opened up. And I've been studying, mind you, for our last uh, messages that we did on the feast, on the Day of Atonement and uh, the Feast of Trumpets. And I open up verse 18. It says, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I thought, is this a joke? Like, why do I keep getting pushed in with these feasts? I don't know what's going on here. But again, I, I really believe that the Lord is speaking to us through this, this whole season sort of that we've been in the last oh, month or so, maybe even going back six weeks. And so um, I'm not going to get too deep into these feasts here. And this section might sound familiar to you. Uh, hopefully it does. If you were with us here about six months ago, um, almost everything that was repeated here in this section is repeated in chapter 23. Uh, Pastor Michael did that message. It was called the Pilgrim Feasts. And if you're interested, I'd uh, point you back to that if you weren't here for whatever reason. But go ahead and take a listen to that message. And it really dives into the specifics of the three feasts mentioned here of unleavened bread, of weeks or uh, first fruits, and then also of ingathering. So we're not going to get a little bit too much into the idea of the feast, but actually turn with me, if you will, back to chapter 23 of Exodus. And we're just going to see a little bit of what we already covered. This is Exodus 23, starting in verse 12. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. Again, there's the parallel to the Sabbath. Drop down to verse 14. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. The feast of unleavened bread, verse 15. That's to be celebrated at the appointed time in the month of Abib. Verse 16, you shall celebrate the feast of the harvest of first fruits and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God, verse 17. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. So we can see that this section uh, is, is really uh, almost word for word, almost verbatim, uh, repeated here. I went back and I actually refreshed myself and I listened to Pastor Michael's message. I'll probably listen at some point. And I said, hey, you didn't do verse 19. You stopped at verse 18. I said, you didn't do this thing about first fruits and boiling a young goat in the milk of its mother. And he said, jokingly and sarcastically and usual Pastor Michael humor, he said, yeah, that's usually what I do with the hard verses. He said, I, I tried to find a younger and less experienced preacher and I pass it on to them. And I said, hey, that's a good idea. I'm going to do the same thing. So as soon as I find a younger and less experienced preacher, they will be sharing this verse with you. No, I'm just kidding. We're actually going to tackle it tonight. It's a little bit tricky. Let's flip back to verse 34. I just want to show you the parallel, verse 23. And again, remind you, you can go back and listen to that message from about six months ago. It's called the Pilgrim Feasts. So again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the Feast of Matzah. Uh, literally, it's you know, the bread that we partake of when we have communion here. On the first Sunday of every month, 
And they were to make this uh, with haste. They were supposed to make this bread with haste, and it didn't have time to rise, and that was the idea of unleavened bread. They were in a hurry as they fled, and they, they left Egypt. Uh, and so it wasn't specifically um, commanded originally in Exodus 12 that they were to eat that type of bread, but it was almost a byproduct. It was a result. Hey, you got to hurry and get out of here. The bread didn't have time to rise, so there you go. You end up with unleavened bread. But Exodus 12 uh, is the original command. It says, on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generation as a permanent ordinance. And so God is recommanding this idea of the Feast of Unleavened Bread now for a third time, because the initial time was in Exodus 12, the actual first Passover. And then during the first uh, iteration of the Ten Commandments with Moses up on the mountain, it was commanded. We read that in verse 23. And then now here we are again, the second iteration, it's being commanded. Well, what do we make of this? If we look at a timeline, we know that the Israelites hadn't actually been out of Egypt for yet a full year. This is likely taking place about seven months after uh, the Exodus. It actually would be taking place probably around this exact time of year on our calendar. Uh, Passover and unleavened bread would have been in the spring, and so about six or seven months later would take us to about this time. So there's not really an opportunity for them to have missed celebrating it, right? If Let's say they hadn't done it for years, then God would reinstitute it, but that hasn't happened yet. Look back at Exodus 32, though, verse 5, just a couple pages back. And uh, this is uh, Aaron in his folly as he uh, makes the, the golden calf. He says, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, referring to the molten calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That Hebrew word for feast, hog, is the same word that's used uh, when we talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Ingathering. So, so Aaron tried to kind of usurp authority in a way and say, hey, let's not worry about God's feast. We're, we're going to have this new feast that I've instituted today for the golden calf. So I think what's happening here is Moses is basically telling the, the people, hey, any ideas you had about celebrating this feast to this golden calf, to this idol, let's just forget about it. We're going to squash it. Here's the things that we're going to celebrate. God says, my feasts are the ones you're going to celebrate. Not the ones you institute, but my feasts. Verse 22 says, you shall celebrate the feast of weeks, that is the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. We're back in 34, verse 22. Sorry, now we're jumping around a little bit. Verse 23, three times a year, all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will drive out nations from you and enlarge your borders, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times the year to appear before the Lord your God. So here's the other two uh, pilgrim feasts mentioned. The first was... Um, Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're, they're often uh, considered one feast, the Passover feast. But the Passover starts on one day. The very next day starts the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is seven days. So it's really one larger eight-day festival. But here's the other two feasts mentioned. The Feast of Weeks, uh, that is the Hebrew feast Shavuot, or the Greek name for it we more commonly know as Pentecost. Uh, now, the Jews believe that the law was actually first given um, on this uh, on this feast, uh, that the law was given to Moses uh, from Mount Sinai, and then Pentecost, of course, is when the Holy Spirit was given much later in Acts 2. Now, it was the uh, 
uh, it was a harvest feast, specifically the wheat harvest. Um, and this was to be observed. They would present their grain offering to the Lord. We talked a little bit about this a few weeks back. But the grain harvest was, was a huge feast of Israel. It literally uh, almost provided them life, if you will. We know that bread was such a huge part of the, the culture, obviously, um, and sustaining life. So this wheat harvest really was essential. It was important. And this uh, celebration before the Lord was really to honor him. It was to give him the first fruits, and it was to say, really, all that we have belongs to you, Lord. We're going to honor you with this. We're going to give it back. And it was really almost ensuring a future harvest that would be coming. And then the last feast mentioned is the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. I believe only twice in the scriptures it's called the Feast of Ingathering, but normally the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Uh, all four, I guess, different ways of really saying the same thing. But this was also a harvest festival. It was the fall crops, specifically grapes and olives. Uh, again, two very important pieces of produce in this culture. Uh, that's one of the big things that they would celebrate amongst all of the other uh, summer and fall produce that, that they would bring in. Now, verse 18 told us that these feasts, all of them were to be celebrated at the appointed time. And you might remember, uh, recently we've been talking about this, that the Hebrew word is the word moed. Moed is an appointed time. And it's kind of this idea that God has an appointment on his calendar. I think Pastor Michael has said, almost like when you receive an invitation in the mail to a wedding or a birthday party, and, and it says, you know, this is the place, this is the time, and you're supposed to RSVP, are you going to be there or not? But God has set this on his calendar, and he's inviting all to come and worship, all to to come and attend. So these appointed times are really God's, uh, God's commanded celebrations for him. And he is again mentioning them. And we think, well, gosh, why does this keep happening over and over? It keeps mentioning these feasts. There's, there's clearly something important to that, and we're going to get into it as we, we move along. But the big picture is that the feasts are forms of worship. They're forms of worship. They're acknowledging, again, as I said, who God is as we uh, not as we, but as the Israelites would have taken the uh, produce, as they would have taken uh, whatever they brought in, they would come and they would offer it to the Lord. And that was an idea of worship. It was for God's faithfulness. And really, the sort of idea of worshiping God at an appointed time is what you and I are doing right here tonight. We've come in here on a Wednesday at 7 p.m., and we do that most every Wednesday, and we do that on Sundays. Pastor Michael said that pretty much whenever the church doors are open, the idea is that God has an appointed time for you to come, for you to come and worship him. The Israelites only had three times a year, at least that were commanded. They had some other opportunities to come, but not nearly the number of times that you and I have. And sometimes we take that for granted, unfortunately. But this church building is open most days of the week. There's corporate worship on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, but there's Bible studies and a variety of other things going on during the week. And really, they're also God's appointed times. And we need to really focus on him as we turn away from the idols in our life, sort of, as we try to destroy those things and turn away. We need to turn to God. I'm not saying church attendance is the end all. I'm not saying that that's what saves you or, or just because you come and attend church that everything's okay. No, that's not quite the case, but really it's a good place to start, to make sure that we are putting God first, and that's really sort of the message that we are saying uh, when we come here. Notice verse 24. It says, I will drive out the nations from you and enlarge your borders, and no one will covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God. Earlier uh, in the section, last week in verse 11, 
Uh, that's where God gave the command that he would uh, uh, drive out the nations and he lists them all there. He would enlarge their borders. But remember that these were uh, agricultural people by and large. They were raising crops, they were raising animals, whatever that would be. And so their entire life was focused on their farm, their vineyard, their ranch, whatever that looked like. So what would happen when they were called away three times a year? See, when we come to church, most of us have the privilege of hopping in our car and driving 5, 10, 15, maybe 30 minutes if you have to sit on the 91 a little bit. But that's, that's about all that uh, it requires for us to get to church, at least most of us. But at this time, depending on where you lived in Israel, this journey up to what would later be Jerusalem, at this time it, it wasn't set, but the place that God chose to dwell was Jerusalem where the temple would later be built. And that's where people were commanded to go up and worship. So again, depending on where you live, this could be a multi-day journey. It could even be a weeks-long journey just to, to get there. And they would do this three times a year. This wasn't just a one-time thing. I, it's, it's a big uh, task that it took to get there. How many of us uh, take vacations for like three weeks at a time? I don't know anybody that takes three weeks off, right? No one has time to do that. But imagine that that's this what these people were doing. They were taking at least that much time off, maybe a week to get there, a week to celebrate, a week back, maybe more. But this was a big commitment. These, these people were all in, we could say. And I think that God knew that there would be a temptation for people to say, nah, I, I can't do that. It's, it's just too hard. It's too far. It's too long of a journey. And, and what about my field? What about when I go away? And my neighbors are supposed to go away because we're all commanded to go up, all able-bodied males. And by extension, that would usually include the family, wives and children. So what if the whole village just packed up and headed to Jerusalem for a three, four-week trip? Their entire town would be left, vulnerable, open. It would be ripe for attack. People would come in and take it over. And I think God foreknew that here, and that's exactly what he was saying. He was saying that when you go up, no one will covet your land. Not to say that no one's going to look on it and find it desirable. Well, certainly they would. It just means that he was going to protect it. God is saying, if you honor me first, don't worry about the rest. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about the cares of the world. Don't worry about your home, your, your field, your livelihood. I'm going to take care of it, he's saying. You just come and worship me. That's what I want you to do. I want you to come and worship me. Remember that God sets the standard for worship. God sets the time for worship. We don't get to do that. We don't get to pick and choose and say when it's convenient for us. Yes, sadly, that's what does happen in our church culture, by and large. We go when it's a little bit more convenient, when everything works out okay. When it's not football season and Sunday morning is a little bit easier to make it here, right? I hear some chuckles, right? But it's true. That's what happens. But God doesn't give that loophole. God sets the standard. God appoints the times. And then God also makes the provisions for us to be able to get there to worship. Our second prescription is to give unto the Lord. Let's look at verse 19. The firstborn from every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock. The firstborn from cattle and sheep. You shall redeem 20 with a lamb, the firstborn from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. 
26. Let's skip down because this again ties together. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Now, in the same way the feasts were commanded, the idea of redemption of the firstborn uh, is recommanded here. It's in Exodus 13, verse 12 to 16, if you're taking notes. We won't turn there now, but it's actually a little bit further treatment on this and the idea of a redemption of the firstborn. But all things belong to the Lord, uh, but by right. They're all his. Again, everything belongs to him. But the Lord declares that the firstborn belong to him. That's human, that's animal. And just like the first fruits of the, the land, it's the same way. Now, the Lord commanded that the first fruits of the land would be brought into him physically, but not so much with the firstborn of the child or with certain animals. He made special provisions, and that's what we're looking at here. Those special provisions, though, involved redemption. They had to be redeemed. They had to be purchased, or they had to be bought back for a price. Again, if you're interested in that, you can go back and listen to the message when we went through Exodus 13. I think that was back when we were in Exodus on Sunday morning still, before we uh, switched over to Wednesday night. It says that the offspring of a donkey was to be redeemed with a lamb, or that it was to be uh, sacrificed. Now, donkeys were unclean animals. Uh, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's a list of clean and unclean animals, and they, they weren't fit for sacrifice or for, for slaughter as an offering in the temple or the tabernacle. And so God made a, a provision. He said, you can redeem that with a lamb, or the other option would be to break its neck. Uh, nice pretty picture there that's painted, right? Those are really the only two options given. Interestingly enough, here's kind of a, a neat tie-in. Donkeys are often in Scripture related to people, to humans. Um, we know that donkeys are stubborn. Uh, I'll let you make all of the connections there on why God decided to liken us to donkeys. Sheep, of course, is another one of the main uh, imageries that we see. But God likens us to donkeys. And it's interesting that a donkey was an unclean animal, it wasn't fit for service to the Lord. It could be redeemed with a lamb or its neck was to be broken. And you and I, as donkeys, as it were, are unclean, unfit for service to the Lord. And there's two options. Our necks are broken. I think, metaphorically speaking, we could just talk about death, that the wages of sin are death. Yet, God redeemed us by the blood of a lamb, by his son, Jesus Christ kind of an interesting little picture that we see here. Verse 20 uh, ends and it says, none are to appear before me empty-handed. This is probably in reference to all three of the different feasts. Each one required different things. The Passover required a lamb, um, and then we obviously had the, the two um, harvest feasts where they would bring in the first fruits of the, the harvest, but we're not to appear before the Lord empty-handed. It could be animals, it could be produce, but not to come empty-handed. Now, these were important things, again, to an agrarian society. This was really the very life of, of what they had. This was their, their currency, almost. This was such a big deal. And it was really, too, an act of worship. It was, as I mentioned earlier, it was an act of putting God first, of consecrating the, the very first and the very best to God. It's acknowledging Him, first and foremost. It's realizing who He is, and then it's giving back to Him, realizing that He has provided for us graciously. And now we skip down to our lovely obscure verse from the end of 26. Very disjointed, is it not? It appears that way, right? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
We see the same command in Deuteronomy 14. I just referenced that a, a bit ago. That's a chapter about clean and unclean animals. Um, and it actually picks this idea up again. Now, this verse is very odd. It's led to, I think, a lot of confusion for a lot of people. You read through commentaries on this stuff, and there's like two sentences. Eh. Most people say that there was some sort of Canaanite fertility ritual. They would take the goat, and they would boil it in uh, its mother's milk, and it was supposed to provide fertility blessings um, for people, but even for animals. They would even do there's some evidence that Canaanites would do weird rituals of actually sowing certain seeds in the ground that there was a way they identified a male and a female seed and they planted them next to each other so that the seeds would reproduce. Kind of odd, um, but there's a little bit out there on that. I don't know that I fully agree with that, though, to be honest. That's just my opinion. That's, uh, that's just something that I believe, so you can take that for what it's worth. But when you read commentaries, when you read sources to kind of back up this idea of this Canaanite ritual, almost all of them spell it out pretty much the same way. Very few, if any, actually give you a source to where they found that. And that's where I find that a little bit confusing. So is it kind of like the idea of an old wives' tale that some story was passed down? Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. There's just not enough evidence for me to really believe that that's exactly what it is. So are there other possibilities? There is one that I think is kind of interesting, and I'll share it with you. Again, it's conjecture, um, but I'll leave it with you for you to make your own decision. So notice that this command is immediately following a command to bring in the first fruits, right? So bring in the first fruits of the land, and then not to boil a young goat in the mother's milk. So you're dealing with produce and, you know, uh, harvested things from the field, but then you're dealing with animals. Seems a little disjointed. Deuteronomy 14.21 says the same thing, but it's in reverse, so first it says, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and then is the command to bring in the harvest. So uh, it's believed that maybe what happened here is that, let me go back. So it, in Deuteronomy, there's actually one more thing that's added. When it talks about bringing in the first of the first fruits, it says of every year. So every year at every harvest, you're supposed to bring in a, a new batch, of course. That would be logical. There is some evidence to believe that what people were doing, uh, to be a little bit dishonest, is they would have leftover from the previous year. Let's say wheat. Let's say something that was a little bit less perishable. It's not fruit that would spoil. You could keep it around for another year. And let's just say you didn't sell all of it. You didn't need all of it. And you've got it stockpiled. Well, then the new harvest comes around, and maybe you have a better crop this year than you did last year. So what some of the people may have done is they took a little bit of this new crop, and then they took a whole lot of this old crop from last year, and then they came to the Lord and said, look, look, this is our, our best. It's the first fruits of the land. We know that when we went through the book of Malachi here on Wednesday nights a while back, that the people and the priests were even trying to kind of do the same sort of thing with animals. They were offering sick and lame animals, ones that, that weren't unblemished, ones that, that weren't really fit for sacrifice. And this is maybe what was going on here. And so, there's sort of an idea that maybe there was a euphemism with this thing being a young goat cooked in its mother's milk. Think of the phrase, cooking the books. We've all heard that, right? What does that mean? It means you're doing something that you shouldn't financially, right? You're embezzling money, you're stealing. That's not to say that you're literally cooking a batch of books and you're dumping them into a, a vat or a pot or whatever and you're cooking them, right? But that could be that that's what's going on here. And this idea of a young goat, the new, is this sort of new harvest of this year. 
And the mother's milk is the old last year's harvest. And that's maybe why these things are connected with this, this idea of first fruits of the land and then a young goat in its mother's milk. Again, that's conjecture. Uh, I happen to like that story. Maybe that's all it is. I, I think it fits. I think that, you know, that's the way sort of God works as we see through other areas of the Bible that it would be like him to maybe uh, write this in here and do something like that. Now, here's one sad story. Um, a lot of times, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they would take texts out of Scripture, you know, they would extrapolate and they would do all sorts of other things, specifically laws about the Sabbath, specifically laws about things you can and you can't do. So specifically Deuteronomy 14, clean and unclean animals, and then also here, not boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, they've extrapolated that to mean that, well, you literally can't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, and they've, they've developed a whole array of what's known as kosher laws. You're familiar with this, right? Kosher laws are things that uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders say you can do and you can't do, and what things you can mix and not mix, and the, the kind of things that you're allowed to eat. So they literally take this to mean that you can't have any dairy with any meat in the same meal. That, that's a belief today. That's what happens in kosher households all over the world. Um, I was in Israel years ago. My first experience, it was very odd. We went into this uh, uh, restaurant in our hotel. I had a team member with me, and she was sick. She had a sore throat, and she said, you know what, I just want some hot water with like a little lemon. Like, great, we're at the hotel, we're at the restaurant, sure. So I asked the waitress, and she said, no, no, you can't have that here. Oh, okay, well, so much for customer service. Another one comes by, and I ask the same question. Hey, can I just get uh, a little cup of water? Uh, with some water? No, 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 you, you can't have that here. This one, though, was gracious enough to tell me, oh, if you go out of the uh, hotel restaurant and into the bar, you can order it. So here I am at the bar at the hotel, and... I get my cup of hot water with a lemon, and I don't think anything of it, and I walk back into the restaurant, and I sit down, I put the mug on, on the table in front of this young woman, and this mob of people comes running over, and they're yelling at me, get out, get out, get out, and I'm, what in the heck is going on here? Well, the Jewish people have taken these kosher laws so extreme that they believe that that mug at one time may have had, let's say, coffee in it, which may have had cream in it, therefore dairy. And here we are at the evening meal. Now, dairy is usually not served at all at an evening meal in the Jewish people. It's meat only. You can't mix meat and dairy. So by bringing this mug into a restaurant and setting it down on a table, I was somehow defiling the whole restaurant, and it was thought to be unclean. And it's kind of sad, and, and we laugh, but it's interesting at, at how far uh, some people go with some of these laws. The, the extreme measures that they take and, and the way that religious people heap on all these other traditions and these commands and they, they burden the shoulders of people, but they won't lift so much as a finger to help. I don't really know exactly what that story has to do with it, but I thought it was interesting as we talk about this idea of kosher laws and what's going on here. But if you're wondering, kosher laws pretty much do stem from this verse, this one verse, and they've extrapolated this whole bunch of other things. Our third point is to rest unto the Lord. Verse 21, you shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. So again, we come to the idea of the Sabbath, and it feels like we've heard that quite a few times in Exodus, have we not? Anyone else getting tired of the Sabbath? 
That was a Sabbath joke. You guys didn't really get tired of the Sabbath. I'll try that again. Wow. But it reappears many, many times. And at face value, we can just say, well, it must be important. God keeps bringing it up. As he institutes uh, all of the different commandments and as he's reinstituting it for the second time, notice what he doesn't actually say anywhere in this section. He doesn't say, don't murder. He doesn't say, don't steal. He doesn't say, don't lie. At least that's not recorded. But he does say to remember the Sabbath. Now, we've gone through this a lot. Um, In Exodus 31, I did a message again about six months back, the sign of the Sabbath. If you want more on that, again, I'd encourage you to take a listen. But very quickly, uh, we know that the Sabbath started in Genesis 2 with creation, six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. He ceased from all of his works that he created. And then in Exodus 16, uh, we see kind of the, the first introduction of it to the people in the form of the manna. We know that the manna was given every day for uh, six days. So five days they went out and gathered as normal. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, and they were commanded on the seventh day not to go out and gather, not to look for it. Some people still decided to go out anyway, and of course, they came up empty-handed because it wasn't there. God told them to rest. Then we have Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, the fourth commandment, the fourth of ten. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, One translation reads like this, remember the day, Shabbat, to set it apart for God. I love that translation. It's a very simple way. Remember to set it apart for God. And then after the Ten Commandments, it's commanded again, Exodus 31, and that message, uh, the sign of the Sabbath. That was in relation to the construction of the tabernacle. God was saying, even though I have this, this great thing for you to build, don't forget, as you're working, make sure you stop. Make sure you take that day. And the commandment in uh, verse 31 was actually added to, and there was a punishment given for death, for disobedience to that command. So here in 21, God as well gives a new stipulation. And in addition to talking about the Sabbath, he says, even during plowing time and harvest time, you shall rest. Now, there's no loopholes in this one. It's a day of rest. It's to be really following the pattern of God. And there was the punishment of death, of course, but here, no loopholes. There was no wiggling out of it because you were too busy. In a commentary on Exodus, Douglas Stewart writes the following, plowing and harvesting are the two most intense times in a farmer's life. The temptation to work seven-day weeks is very strong during these seasons, since planting and harvesting at the right time can be essential to crop productivity. And beating bad weather can seem to necessitate taking no time off during these crucial periods. That is, working through the Sabbath days. But the combination of worship and rest provided by the Sabbath was more important to God and should have been more important to the worshiper than farm productivity. In the life of the New Covenant believer, worship, prayer, study of Scripture, and Christian service must likewise take precedence over making money, lest gaining the temporal world result in losing one's eternal soul. There were no exceptions, not even during seed time and harvest. If there ever was a time when it seemed appropriate to break the Sabbath, it was when the weather was perfect for planting or the crops needed to come in from the fields. But even at crucial times on the agricultural calendar, God wanted his people to rest. Rather than depending on their own exertion, they needed to trust him to provide. And this idea of rest is, again, a form of worship, 
of acknowledging God. They're all yours, all seven days. You've given six to me. I can give one back to you. It's simple math, but most of us in our greed have the desire to steal all seven days. I want to read a poem that I found of a, a young man uh, growing up in, uh, I think it was the Netherlands, actually, and his um, parents were um, you know, very much involved in, in the church, very strong believers in the Sabbath. And the poem goes like this, Were my parents right or wrong not to mow the ripe oats that Sunday morning with the rainstorm threatening? I reminded them that the Sabbath was made for man and of the ox fallen into the pit. Without an oat crop, I argued, the cattle would need to survive on town-bought oats, and then it wouldn't pay to keep them. Isn't selling cattle at a loss like losing an ox to the pit? My parents did not argue. We went to church. We sang the usual psalms, but louder than usual. We and the others whose harvests were at stake. For more floods came and more winds blew and beat upon that house than we had ever figured on. More lightning and thunder and hail the size of pullet eggs. Falling branches snapped the electric wires. We sang the closing psalm without the organ and in the dark. Afterward, we rode by our oat field, flattened. We will still mow it, Dad said. Ten bushels to the acre, maybe. What would have been 50 if I had mowed it this morning right after milking. And if the whole family had helped, we could have had it weatherproof before the storm. Later at dinner, Dad said, God was testing us, and I'm glad we went. Those psalms never gave me such a lift as this morning. Mother said, I wouldn't have missed it. And even though I thought, I did not say how guilty we would feel now if we had saved the harvest. What a beautiful picture of someone willing to devote themselves to the Lord. It's kind of a, a sobering reminder of the things that we place as more important than God. Here was a family willing to risk everything, risk livelihood even, but they were trusting on God. They had ultimate dependence on God. And so as we look at this idea of Sabbath and why it pops up in this text, you know, why again in this context? What is the, the fourth commandment doing in this list of the ceremonial laws here? Well, keeping a weekly day of rest, it, it nourishes our love for the one true God. It helps us to turn away from idols. Remember turning away from idols and turning towards God. If we don't make that provision to turn towards him and make him an important part of our life, we will stray. And one of the best ways for them to stay in love with God and to avoid being uh, really seduced by this pagan worship in the land was Sabbath, was to keep God first. And the same is true for us. You and I need the Lord's day. It's a, it's a weekly reminder for us, a weekly festival of worship, if you will. It's a day to stop thinking about the world and our earthly gain, but to focus on the heavenly gain that we have in Christ, his glories. Now, this is a a striking contrast to our culture today, is it not? Hurried and frenzied and we're running about from one place to the next. People are just frazzled. Have you noticed? You walk around and people are just out of their minds because they got so much going on. And I'm not even talking about like the real difficult things in, in life. I'm talking about just busyness. 
the, the sin almost of busyness. It can be its own idol. We can turn away from God and neglect his command, not do what he says to do, not follow him. And we can focus on ourselves. We can focus on our own busyness. I know that all of you, like me, have a lot going on in life, work and school and kids and bills and car repairs and home repairs and got to do this, got to do that, got to go here, got to go there. I, I understand. I have a two-year-old. That's pretty much explains it all. That's, uh, that's rough. Those of you with multiple kids are laughing at me, thinking, you only have one? Well, I have one on the way, too, so uh, that'll be a fun adventure. Now, I do want to clarify, though, and say that God puts an emphasis on hard work. He certainly commands rest. There's no doubt about that. Hard work is important. Six days you shall labor, and you shall do it well. You should be faithful. You should work hard. We know that God looks down on sloth and laziness and and things of that nature. But we have a culture that celebrates busyness, and I don't see that anywhere in the Scriptures. I see celebrating rest. I see working hard, yes, but celebrating rest. Celebrating busyness just for the sake of busyness, I don't see that. J.C. Petty, who was the founder of the uh, department store by that name, I, I know I've shared this quote before, he said, if a man is too bu- specifically if a man's work keeps him too busy that he can't attend Sunday morning service, Sunday night service, and Wednesday night prayer three times a week, that man is far too busy than God ever intended him to be. Now, we think that's extreme, is it not? Three times a week? No, no, no. It's it's, it's all I can do to get one time a week. It's interesting, as you read through commentaries on any of these sections in Exodus that deal with the Sabbath, without a doubt, almost every single one draws a pretty hard line on honoring the Lord's day. None of them say, yeah, you can just go to church in the morning, and then the rest of the day, just go do what you want. No, all of them draw a really hard line that that day is set apart, it's consecrated, it's holy, and it's to the Lord. And then I look out at our culture, and it is totally opposite, is it not? We rush to church five, ten minutes late, 20 minutes late. I'm not looking at anyone in particular if you came in 20 minutes late, but... And then we leave five, ten minutes early, and we rush off because we got to go somewhere else. We got sports for the kids, we got this. Now, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but where are our priorities? Are we making God a priority? And are we showing others? It's a sign to others that we are devoted to God and that we are committed to Him. So we gather unto the Lord, we give unto the Lord, and we worship to the Lord. Those were the commands specifically for the Israelites. But what about us today? How do we sort of take these to heart? And how do we focus on gathering to the Lord, giving unto the Lord, and then resting unto the Lord? Well, we're to gather with the Lord regularly. I I said earlier that Pastor Michael made a mention, whenever the doors of this church are open, it's almost as if God has an appointment. Hey, come on in. I want want to meet with you. I'm requesting your presence, if you will, a little little invitation. You might not get it in the mail every week. Hey, living truth, we're going to be here Sunday morning, 8.30, 10.30, and Wednesday night at 7 p.m. You're not going to get an invitation every week, but 
We have a bulletin and it lists the service times. It's almost like an invitation. And I know I may be preaching to the choir for those of you that are here on a Wednesday night. It's not meant to beat anybody up. That's certainly not the case. I speak to myself as much as I speak to you. Remember, you listen about 45 or 50 minutes of this, and I got about 20, 30 hours of study into this. So I've done a lot of reflection. And that's not to pat me on the back or anything, but to say that I have to be reflective of what God says through his word to me first before I come up here and I deliver it to you. I'm not just simply repeating something that I heard. I'm filtering it through my mind and through my heart and seeing what God wants me to, uh, to focus on. So do you take him up on the appointment to be here or do you turn him down? Do you have other things going on? Remember, we have access to the Lord. These people didn't have that back then. It's a privilege. It's an honor that we have to be able to come three times a week. Some people might see it as a burden. I'm not saying you have to. Come once a week and be faithful, and that's great. I know many of you, uh, and if you're watching online, you know, work on Wednesdays and there's stuff going on. That's fine. You're not under a commandment or you're not under the law to be here on a Wednesday night. Please don't uh, misinterpret what I'm saying. But as often as possible, we should be coming and we should be gathering to the Lord. Church shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be a chore. We should be like David in Psalm 122. And he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Is that what's on your heart and your mind when you come to church? I was glad when they said to me, I get to come to living truth tonight to worship my God, to worship with other believers, brothers and sisters, to fellowship together, to pray with one another, to encourage one another. What a beautiful thing, is it not? We talked about the idea of forsaking all others and turning to God, forsaking idols and then turning to God. But the New Testament gives at least one command with the idea of not forsaking something. Do you remember what that is? It's in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25 is the larger section. But we are told not to forsake the gathering together of ourselves, not to forsake the assembly of ourselves. Let me read it, starting in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own gathering together, our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you hold fast to that confession of hope that you say you have, then you shouldn't be forsaking the gathering. We need to be here in person as much as possible. I know Pastor John touched on this last week. I hope this doesn't feel like a session where I'm beating people over the head. That's not my intent. My prayer is that it's an encouragement and even an exhortation. And if you're watching online, the scriptures command that we meet together. The live stream is a, is a great tool. It's a great blessing that we have. And uh, it has its uses. We know there are many people that, that can't come. What an amazing thing during COVID. Do you remember? I was just reflecting on that uh, earlier in the, the prayer meeting. Our very first Easter at home without coming to church. Do you all remember how weird that was? We couldn't get out of the house. It was like the first few weeks of COVID. We were all locked up. And we were saying how we went around to our neighborhood and we dropped off little tracks and little candy and a little card, you know, and it just said, hi, we're, we're your neighbors at this address. And you know, what we're praying for you, and we dropped off. That was like our only connection to the outside world. Do you remember that feeling of craving, wanting to get back 
with other believers? Anyone? It's a quiet group tonight. Anyone? Raise your hand. Do you remember that, that feeling? I think some people have just lost that completely. Pastor John mentioned, you know, we, we talk to people sometimes and, and they say, I just, I haven't been to, to church and I, I've just been a little lazy, you know. It's, it's, it's become their new habit, unfortunately. But the good thing is, God's still here. The doors are always open and people can come at any time. And again, this isn't beating people up. This is an exhortation. It's an encouragement. This is what the scriptures tell us, not to neglect, not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. We need to be together. That was the idea of these feasts. They were communal feasts. This wasn't just a, a, a little transaction where you walked up to the temple and you gave your offering or you gave your sacrifice. No, it was a week-long feast. It was a celebration. Uh, there are some words that seem to imply that there was dancing, that there was this processional. How many of you went over to uh, Beth Shalom for uh, Pentecost? Remember the dancing? How about those of you that were here for, um, excuse me, I meant uh, Tabernacles or Sukkot. How many of you were here for Pentecost earlier this year when, when uh, Beshalom was here? Do you remember that we had a group all around this, literally the outside perimeter of these pews, a giant like train or snake of people uh, with, with hands locked and we were dancing around. That's the idea of celebrating. And I think as a Christian church, the evangelical church, we can probably learn a lot of things from our, our brothers and sisters over there. Well, I got off on a very long tangent about that. So let's talk a little bit about giving unto the Lord. God told his people that they were to bring in their very best. The firstborn was to be to them, but they were supposed to bring in the first of the first fruits, the very best. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us now, in, in light of the fact that there's no temple, in light of the fact that there's no sacrifices, that there's no offerings, that we bring as New Testament believers. What are we supposed to do? Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. With this idea of firstborn, I think it's a reminder for us as parents. Again, we were uh, praying before the service and we were praying for prodigal children. I know that maybe many of you in this room have prodigal children. But it's, it's a neat reminder for any parent that our children are not our own, that they are on loan to us, as it were, that they belong to God, but they've been born into our families. We've been given the opportunity and the privilege to care for them and to raise them up, to train them up in the way that they should go. But they're not ours. They're the Lord's. Their souls belong to him. And we pray and we hope that ultimately they make that decision for him and that their eternal soul is with the Lord. That's our hope and prayer. Be praying for those, maybe, by the way, church, prodigals. We, we, we sit in a room of about eight or 10 people, maybe on a good day in that prayer room. So if you'd love to come out at six o'clock, we're in there. We could always use more prayer. But we sit in a room of eight or 10 people. And I'd say at least half have prodigal children. And I just thought to myself tonight, what if that statistic is representative of those in, in the greater congregation here tonight and on a Sunday? Four or five, six hundred people that come into the church. There could be a lot of prodigals. Be praying for them. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's be praying that their children would come to know the Lord because all children ultimately belong to him. 
As we think of giving, we, of course, automatically go to financial giving. That's certainly a way that we can do that. We, we take offerings, and we know that finances are needed to sustain the church, and that's certainly a way that we can worship is through our finances. You've probably heard it said that we can uh, give an offering of our time, our talent, or our treasure, three things that we can offer up to God. And then lastly, the idea of resting unto the Lord. Now, I know this idea of the Sabbath is very foreign to most of us as New Testament believers. There's even a lot of kind of division and some interesting things with the idea of the Sabbath. People saying, oh, you can't throw people back under the, the law, and nobody needs to celebrate the Sabbath. That, that commandment's been, been laid to rest. Yes, I, I agree with that, but there's certainly principles. We can see that this was commanded many, many times over and over and over. And that's the beauty of really going verse by verse through this book, is we get to see this command reinstituted, reinstituted, reinstituted. God is continually reminding people Sabbath isn't this legalistic set of restrictions that we have to follow, but it's rather a blessing that I think we can learn to embrace. Christ came to fulfill the law. We're not under that anymore. We know that. In Mark 2, I believe it's 27, he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. We're not bound by these restrictions. We're not held under this law. Remember, man was created on the sixth day, and then on the Sabbath, uh, the seventh was the Sabbath. That day was created for man to enjoy. And you and I, brothers and sisters, actually get to enjoy that day. God wants us to be with him. He wants all of our actions that day, all that we do, everything that we do, everywhere we go, to be centered around him, to be focused on him. Isaiah 58 says, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and you call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own ways and from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So how do we celebrate? Well, we just set the day apart. It doesn't look like normal. There's no command. There's no certain way to do it. But can I challenge you as individuals of this church to celebrate a Sabbath? I use that term specifically, celebrate a Sabbath. I'm not going to say keep a Sabbath because you're not under a law to do it. But celebrate a Sabbath. How many have ever done a Sabbath? Let's say a 24-hour period of, of just resting from normal activity, focusing on the Lord. I saw like a half of a hand go up. Let me encourage you. And let me also tell you that I stand here as someone that used to try to do this a lot more, and I did it a lot better. And I'm in a season right now where I'm not doing it so good. I will say that I had a temptation this past Saturday. For most people, the Sabbath would be a Sunday for most Christians. That's a day that you usually have off work. You're here at church anyway. I happen to work here at the church on a Sunday, and it's a privilege, but Sunday's a work day. So I choose to take Saturday as a Sabbath. My temptation was four or five days ago to study for this message. I made a conscious decision to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to spend time with the Lord. I knew this date was on the calendar. Tonight was an appointed night for me to come deliver this message. But I tried to honor the Lord, and I think he blessed it. Again, there's no magic formula, but maybe, maybe turn off technology. Maybe don't do what you normally do. 
There's a, a pastor that says, if you want to try to celebrate a Sabbath, make sure it's free of need-tos and have-tos. Things like, I need to do this, I have to do this, I need to go to the store, I have to do the laundry, I have to... Whatever it is, try to take a whole day and just let that be my encouragement to you. I'm going to give you a money-back guarantee. If it doesn't work, you can come back and yell at me and say, it didn't work, I didn't like it, God didn't bless it. But I don't think that's the case. I, I think you're going to get some enjoyment out of it. And again, I'm not saying you need to do this every week. This isn't ritualistic. But try it. Taste and see, as it were. As we close, verse 27 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I made a covenant with you and with Israel. The Lord made a covenant with his people. We know that. But he's also made a covenant with you and I today. He's the author of a new and better covenant, we're told in Hebrews 8. And amen to that, right? We're not saddled under that old covenant, but we have a new covenant. What's interesting is this covenant is not made with people as a whole, but it's made with the individual. It's made with you and I. The Lord offers it, and then we have to accept it. It's much like this idea of a wedding vow. God standing at an altar, as it were, ready to make that covenant with with us. And the question for all of us is, have we made that covenant with God? Have we made that decision to trust him and to follow him? For all of you that are married in the room, you stood at an altar one day and you, you made that vow to love and cherish and have and to hold in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, right? But I hope that you've made that same vow to the Lord, that you've made a decision to forsake all others, anything else, any other gods of this world, any other idols of this world, and that you would have turned to him that you would have made him the Lord of your life. And he's ready to make the covenant with you if you haven't done that. He made the covenant with the people this day. But if you've never made that covenant with him and he's never made it with you, he's ready. Today is the day of salvation. Church, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your everlasting love. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, that you forgive sin and transgression to a thousand generations. And Lord, I thank you that you have forgiven my sin and my transgressions. Lord, I know that this room is filled with people with that same heart that want to worship you and praise you, Lord. We simply ask for your help, God. Help us be a people that would honor you, that would make you a priority in our lives that church attendance would be a priority, our gathering together, that we would be able to, to gather with brothers and sisters and build one another up and live out the 59 one another statements with each other for your glory. May we give to you of all that we have. May we recognize that all we have is from you in the first place. We want to give back to you humbly. We want to give back to you with joy. And may we learn to rest in you, Lord. I, I think that's probably the hardest thing for us as New Testament believers. It's probably the one commandment that we don't regard as a commandment anymore. We know we're not under the law, Lord, but we know that you love us and that you have provided this day. You yourself rested. You've given us that pattern. Help us to walk in that, Lord. Help us to learn to find freedom in a Sabbath and not view it with a legalistic sense. 
Help us to worship you with all that we do, Lord. And if you don't know the Lord, if you have not entered into that covenant, I know I've made analogies about wedding vows and committing yourself, and maybe it even sounds weird to you. Um, Cry out to the Lord. Ask him to save you. There's not a certain magic formula or specific way to do it. But cry out to him. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and your transgression. Turn to him. Repent. Turn from your ways. Turn to him. Trust in him. And commit your life to him. May you follow him all the days of your life. And if there are prodigals, Lord, that need to make a a recommitment, people that realize that maybe they, they need to focus on you more, they need to worship you more, in whatever area or avenue that is, I pray that they would turn back to you. We know that your arms are always wide open. We know that even though we may have forsaken you, you, Lord, have never left us or forsaken us, nor will you. So I pray they would come back to you, Lord, that they would uh, once again experience the joy of your salvation, Father. We thank you for this night. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.